Hello and welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study. Greetings to all of you here as well as those over at our campuses in Stevens Point and Appleton as well as the hundreds of people, amazingly enough, that watch us online all over the world live and a lot of people afterwards. It's stunning. I'm always amazed at how many people I'll run into from the furthest reaches of the continents who say, we listen to your Bible studies all the time. We listen to all your sermons. I think, wow, you must have a lot of free time. But... Uh, um, but uh, it's, it's fun uh, to, uh, to hear words like that. Uh, we are doing a uh, study. We are in the New Testament. We're going, our, our, what we do on Wednesday nights is we go through the entire Bible. Our goal is to go through the entire Bible one verse at a time. Now, for those of you who are new uh, to hearing what we're doing, now this is not based in arrogance. It's not that I claim to understand every verse in the Bible. Therefore, I will impart my wisdom to all. Uh, that is not the context. In fact, I'm very frequently, uh, if you follow very long, we'll hear oftentimes what I'll say, look, I have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> I don't get it. Usually when I say that, then several people in the congregation will, you know, take a screen clip of something some theologian says and emails it to me. No, 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 I read that too. <laughs> you know, I, I, I can study hard for 30 seconds too, you know, and do that. I see what they say, is just oftentimes what they say to me doesn't make sense. A lot of these theologians actually take one verse of the Bible and their conclusions are just out of whole cloth. I don't know where they even get their conclusions from. I'm sure, you know, just because you're smart doesn't mean you're right. <laughs> Somebody say amen. You know, so, you know, I read it as I look at the thing, I'm studying, I read it, I look at it, and at the end I just like, man, I don't know what the heck they're talking about. And I always tell you that, which is fine. Uh, I'm not fearful of admitting I, I, I don't know something. <laughs> There's a great many things uh, I, I do not know. Um, anyway, it is what it is. So we are going to, uh, we are in the book of Acts. What, what we've been doing is starting in the book of Acts, and we've been following Paul's missionary journeys. He has three big missionary journeys. We are now toward the end of his third missionary journey. He has now ended up, after coming around here, and he's back in Corinth finally, He's there for three months, and uh, up until this time, that's when he wrote his first letter to the Corinthians, the second letter to the Corinthians, which we just finished. Now he's finally with the Corinthians, and he writes this letter to the church in Rome while he's there in Corinth for three months. And uh, so we are now in the book of Romans, the letter of Romans, where we say books, but they're all, these are letters, uh, that he writes to these Roman believers, so... We'll get into it. Let's open in a word of prayer as we start uh, the study. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray for wisdom and insights into your word. We know that uh, your word is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. All this stuff is for our growing and for our benefit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we got about as far as, let's say, chapter 1, verse 18 of Romans. We'll pick it up there at uh, verse 18. So Paul basically starts out. In verse 7, he's writing, he says, to all, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. And, you know, so that's, that's his whole thing. Now, um, so he's writing to these people. Now, in the beginning of Christianity, we pointed out many times that the churches in the beginning were made up entirely of Jewish believers uh, who were converts to Christianity. All Christians, early Christians, were all Jewish. Uh, in fact, they didn't even think you could be a believer if you weren't Jewish first or be converted to Judaism first. Uh, well, then all of a sudden, more and more non-Jews, Gentiles, which is the category most of us would be in, uh, became Christians. Uh, and then uh, uh, it's probably, you know, 
we're probably at the point in the church now where the majority of people in the churches are actually now non-Jewish, but there's still a lot of Jewish guys there. Uh, and they, they tend to uh, hold a disproportionate amount of sway over the congregations, if you will, because they had the advantage of knowing the Old Testament, which these pagans came in, they didn't know jack. There was no point of reference at all. So they had a better fundamental understanding of, uh, of, of uh, even of the Christian faith based on the Jewish experience. Uh, but it didn't make them any holier uh, or closer to God or any of those things. Paul really starts teaching that there's no difference between a Jew and a non-Jew. When you become a Christian, you become a Christian. Everything else just doesn't matter anymore. Uh, and in fact, for some reason... <clears throat> Even to this day, there are pockets of Christianity that if they find out that a rabbi who's a messianic rabbi, you know, a Jew that becomes a Christian, if he's teaching, oh, they're just drawn to that. But if you announce that there's, you know, a Jewish believer, wow, we want to go see that, as if they have some holier insight than anybody else. And out of reference and deference to these brothers, it's wonderful that they're Christians, but they're not <laughs> any holier than a Puerto Rican, all right? It doesn't really make any, you know, and, and they don't have any special insights. Remember, Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthians, already they were getting leaders who were stronger in Judaism, and they started treating them as though they were, you know, really had some special insights. And that's why Paul wrote, remember, we just ended in 2 Corinthians, he says, hey, they say they're Jewish, I'm Jewish. They say that I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. So, uh, you know, there's no special standard there. And in fact, at one point, we'll get to it, uh, and it'll be highly entertaining when we get to it, uh, where Paul says, all of that stuff is just a big pile of poo, as far as I'm concerned. And we'll get to that when we get to that. When I tell you the words he actually used, it's very entertaining. Uh, so anyway, um, so now he's writing to these churches, and of course, by Rome, you have to understand, we, the reason why we assume that most of them were uh, non-Jews is because all these people were basically non-Jews. Jews were a small percentage of any of this population. Here, in Jerusalem, it's a whole different ballgame. But by the time you get out here, and I promise you, in Rome, I'm sure the bulk of the converts in Rome were non-Jewish. Yet the Jewish saints still had a, a strong place and, again, to some level were treated uh, disproportionately, I think. Paul starts to address it more and more. But you'll see here as he starts writing to these Romans, this first couple of chapters are almost dedicated entirely to Jewish people. It's real interesting, you know, as, as he's trying to correct uh, this thinking. So anyway, he starts out now. Now, the thing with, with uh, these first few chapters in Rome, uh, in the book of Romans, they're a little confusing. Paul makes arguments that at times it's hard to follow his arguments. And he kind of jumps around and it's like, you're, you're, you know, it's, it's, it's a little hard. Uh, but the nice thing about, especially in, the, in Romans, his conclusions are always crystal clear. That's really what we want, is the conclusions. Personally, I'd rather have the Cliff Notes version. Tell me what you want to tell me, right? And then he gets into these debates, a lot of times even with the Jewish and the law and stuff, and he's kind of all over the place, and you're like, you know, trying hard really uh, to focus. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One is we are looking at something that was written 2,000 years ago. It's still relevant today. That doesn't change. Time doesn't change the relevancy. The scriptures are as powerful today as the day they were penned. 
but uh, they spoke in different ways. Uh, you got translation differences. You got the way people would debate and make arguments. It's just different. Look, I could take something from Spanish, translate it into English, and as accurate as we possibly can, but at the end of the day, it's never quite the same. It's not. Uh, we could take something from Italian and translate it into German and have the most intelligent people do it, but at the end, it's still never quite, the, you have to understand that's still a little bit in play here. It doesn't take away from the effectiveness of it. It's just that sometimes when they get into their arguments and debates, the stylistic ways that they would debate and make their arguments, it's so much different than the way we would debate something today. So it's a little hard to follow at times, but we'll push through it. The beautiful thing about it is his conclusions, particularly uh, in Romans, are absolutely crystal clear. I'll point them out as we hit them. I mean, there's, there's no way. We'll we kind of get up to it like he's, and then, but he's, boom, this is what I'm talking about. It's so clear and very powerful. Uh, and he's usually that way. There's, there's a few times that we notice it, in, particularly in the first letter to the Corinthians, where Paul's making arguments, and you're going, I, I don't know what he's talking about. And then his conclusion didn't even make any sense. All right? And I pointed these out. For example, where Paul says, you know, that women should have their heads covered when they pray. And they should do this because of the angels. What does that mean? Well, nobody knows what it means. Even the theologians that you can clip and send to me say, they don't know what it means. You know, they, 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 nobody really understands. And because we don't know the argument for it, the, the, conclude, the, the argument doesn't make any sense because of the angels, the conclusion doesn't make any sense. It's not, not tied to any reference to holiness or benefit or anything else. Now, was Paul absolutely insistent that women should have their heads covered? Absolutely. Why don't we do it today? Because most churches look at it and go, what? It doesn't make any sense. Whereas other things, you know, like when he talks about morality, he, he says, I warn you, those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That gets our attention. All right. But when he talks about things like hair, which most of us, some of us, I should say, don't even have much of it anymore. Uh, it, it just doesn't make any sense. We don't understand it, so we don't make a big deal of it, and usually, by and large, most churches uh, today uh, just discount it altogether. We don't know why. Um, but like when he made the argument about a communion, because they would get together. They have to remember, communion originally, the Last Supper was a supper. It was literally a full-blown meal. So when they would get together and do communion, it was basically a potluck. They would sit down, they'd have this big meal, and while they're eating the meal, they would point out that this bread represents Christ's body, the wine represents his blood, but they started making it into a party and, uh, and being gluttons, and some people weren't getting enough food, and some were getting too much food, and some guys were getting drunk, Paul said, which is really a miracle when you listen to these evangelicals who tell you that they only drank grape juice in the Bible. Because I'm not quite sure how much grape juice you have to drink to get drunk, but apparently... It was quite a miraculous group because they could drink grape juice and get drunk at the same time. So So, anyway, so then he really nails it with when you do this disrespectfully, you are eating and drinking damnation to yourself. Holy cow! Nobody wants that. And from then on, it's been a little wafer and an itty-bitty cup. Now, one could argue that's a bit of a... an overreaction. I don't know if that's what Paul intended, but why do we take it so seriously? Who wants to eat and drink damnation? You know, we're just taking this really seriously. This is all this is. You can go get your burger as soon as we're done, uh, and, and we're going to take this very, very seriously. So, you know, most of the time, his conclusions are very clear, even if some of the arguments aren't. 
And there's a few times when he does make some arguments and conclusions that don't make any sense. And oftentimes in today's uh, Christian culture, they're largely overlooked. Even though someone could make the argument, you're disobeying what Paul said, most churches will go, yeah, but we don't know what he's talking about. What, what's the, you know, we, we don't, we honestly just don't, don't understand it. And we're not the only ones who didn't understand it. My comfort is always when I read Peter, see the first, Peter's first letter or the second letter, where he talks about Paul and he says the following, there's things he say that are really hard to understand. And I go, thank God, because that was just me, because I don't know what the heck he's talking about. Because even Peter's saying, look, he's a great guy, family, but I don't know what he's talking about sometimes. So anyway, all that, to now let's get into his argument here. Now, he doesn't tell us what he's doing, but it makes sense. Again, that's another way that they would make some of their arguments, particularly in the Old Testament. A lot of times in the Old Testament, you would start reading stories that don't make any sense until you get to the end. And then it makes sense. You know, that's not how we tell stories today. We just tell, you know, some kind of, unless you're trying to keep people in suspense. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Here's why I'm trying to make it. But, you know, it's just, again, different ways of communication. And that's thousands of years ago in Hebrew, not even in, in, in Greek. So all these changes. So he goes into this thing immediately talking about the sin- sinfulness of, human, uh, of humanity. He starts out with naming two of the biggies. The biggest one from a Jewish perspective was idolatry. You know, you don't worship idols, only one God, okay? And so he starts there, and the next biggie he talks about is homosexuality, which whenever people debate uh, the issue of homosexuality from a Christian viewpoint, they inevitably, invariably will quote from this chapter in the book of Romans, which makes it very clear that there's a problem with it. We'll deal with more of that in just a minute. But he just starts there, and then he keeps broadening out all the sins that he's talking about. That gets down to the sins that virtually everybody here is guilty of at some point. What he's trying to set up is this thing that the conclusion he will eventually make where he says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That is his point. That is clear. That everybody understands, okay? But we go through this thing to watch him make his point. So here we go. So now he says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So he's basically talking about the sinfulness of humanity. Uh, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Uh, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that the people are without excuse. Now, this is really an important verse because a lot of people say, well, what what about people who've never heard the Bible? How do they rate on judgment days? Well, they never knew anything about it. Well, Paul starts right here. He says, look, Throughout all of eternity, or not all of eternity, all of human's existence, the evidence of God has been clearly seen. And he says in a little bit, we'll read it in just a little bit, where he says also their consciences. I mean, there, there's, you don't need to read thou shalt not kill to know inherently you shouldn't kill people. That kind of stuff. I mean, some of the basic, the, the real technical parts of the law of Moses about what you can eat and when you could work. And so obviously that, that wasn't clear to anybody. But the basic ways of treating human beings and kindness and love. All of this has been evident to everybody, even if they've never heard about the Ten Commandments. All right, so that's what he's really going out of his way here to point out. He says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Talking about mankind turning away from God. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human 
being and birds and animals and reptiles. So the absurdity of human beings made in the image of God bowing down to a statue made out of a frog or a lizard or a chicken or you know whatever these and you know a, a lion with a human head and you know, all the different things I've had about idolatry throughout uh, the centuries is from a Jewish perspective clearly and even from common sense <laughs> blatantly absurd. <laughs> Why are we worshiping critters? You know we don't worship critters we eat them. That's what we do. Therefore, God gave them over to their sinful desires because they're hardening their hearts. This is he's just in a nutshell. He's talking about the corruption of, of mankind. They hardened their hearts. God gave them over their uh, sinful desires uh, of their hearts to sexual immorality for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. So he's hitting the two biggies here. Uh, He's just hinting about the homosexuality, but he's going to get into it real strong in just a second. Uh, but the biggie he's leading with is worshiping created things instead of the creator. That's the, that's the sin. That's the most horrible thing. Now, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. Women started having sex with women. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts. Uh, with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Uh, furthermore, they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they ought, so they do what they ought not to be done. Uh, this and other verses in the New Testament make it very, very, very clear that sexual immorality, particularly in this case he's highlighting just homosexuality, falls short of a biblical standard. Uh, but he doesn't stay there. He just sets them up and then he starts going into everything else. Uh, okay? So, anyway, someone who says, New Testament, I say you can't, it, there's nothing wrong with homosexuality. I've clearly never read the New Testament. You know, it, there, there is a problem with it. From a moral sense, it doesn't mean we hate anybody. You don't hate Gabe anymore than you hate the rest of them. See, he's going to tie it all together in a second. So let's just keep going and then I'll come back and pontificate. All right, so... Uh, they have become filled, talking about mankind, with every kind of wickedness. Yeah, just talked about idolatry, homosexuality. Yeah, those horrible people. Every kind of wickedness. Evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy. Ooh, now he's getting close to home. A lot of people got problems with envy. They dislike someone because they have something better than they, they don't have. I heard about Sunday from a guy who quit coming to church because he doesn't like my shoes. My shoes are too fancy. I got for simple ones tonight. All right. It's just envy. It's just stupidity. You know, it's like I took money out of the offering to go buy shoes. I didn't do that. <laughs> it's my stinking money. And I like shoes. <laughs> and I drive a rusty pickup truck. What do you care? It all balances out. So, but, but it's envy. You know, I've had people who look on my website, you know, and, you know, get, and I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, you know, they'll see me going on some trip, you know, first class or something, I'll post it online, and they get nasty and they say horrible. It's just envy. Is it, you know, you're making us feel bad and stuff like that. Is it, really? I just, I'm not bragging. I'm, I think it's hilarious that somebody was dumb enough to pay me that much money to come talk. <laughs> They're usually corporations. They, they pay obscene amounts of money. Uh, <laughs> it's wonderful. I wish it happened more often. Uh, and uh, to come talk to them. And I, I praise the Lord for it. Hallelujah. This is great, you know. And then people get nasty about it. So 
Now, so now we're talking envy, we're talking murder, obviously everyone understand that. Strife, strife, why is that? Strife, fighting, people fighting. I don't agree with you. Yeah, well, I don't agree with you. We well, should have done that. Like we talked on Sunday about people who get offended by everything. Christians will go around with chips on their shoulders and stuff. Well, boy, he's kind of mixing in all these sins here. Uh, deceit, malice, gossips. Because <laughs> Christians, we don't gossip, we pray for people. Yeah. You know. Uh, we need to pray for Pastor Mark. Well, let me tell you why. <laughs> it's called gossip, you see. But we're smart enough to cover it in prayer. Okay, it's a sin. Slander, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. People invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. Well, that's a pretty mild one. And he's thrown it in this list. They have no understanding, no fidelity, which means, you know, uh, they're not uh, faithful people. No love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. See, oftentimes you will hear people quote from the Old Testament. Let's, let's go back to the gay thing where people, a lot of Christians pick on gays. You know, the Bible says they should be killed. In the Old Testament it does. Why? I don't know. And never feel obligated. I'm telling you, my biggest advice to all y'all Christians who get into base with people, never feel obligated to explain the Old Testament. Just don't do it. You know, in the Old Testament, they kill people. Just, why is that? Says, I don't know. You've got to talk to a rabbi. I'm a Christian. Because in the New Testament, we don't kill anybody. Right? There's no, nobody's killing anybody. No one's been killing anybody. Jesus comes along and says, love your enemies. Right? It's all different. That's our world. This is the Christian experience that we share. Why they did it, there's reasons that you can get into it. But why get into it with them? But, but these people who pick on homosexuals uh, are very convenient because they like to quote that verse. But the truth is, they used to kill everybody for everything. At least threatened to. Now, there's some argument, debate that I was reading by some theologian that said, you know, despite the Old Testament saying that you're going to kill everybody for all these things, there's very little record that anybody ever did any of that. You know, it was just a way of really making a point. Because they would, if you worked on a Saturday, penalty, kill you. If you disobeyed your parents, penalty, kill you. If, if you cursed, that'll kill a lot of you right there. Boom, kill you. All right, boom. I mean, it's, it's, don't just take one thing. It just irritates me. You see Christians, well, homosexuals, such an abomination. You're supposed to be stoned to death. You pinhead. We should stone you to death based on a lot of this stuff. You know, just don't go there. I promise you, you want to get goofy. Every time, almost 99% of the time, when Christians get goofy, they're quoting the Old Testament. Take it to the bank. I don't care if it's their opposition to Christmas. I don't care if it's their opposition. Whatever it is, tattoos, you know, eating pork, you know, whatever, all their little pinheaded things they come. They try and drag in the Old Testament law into new Christian faith, and it becomes a disaster, and it's uh, indefensible. So, um, don't, it just always bothered me, when for some reason, they just like to pick on the homosexual thing of it. Uh, anyway, it says, not only do they continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Therefore, this is chapter two. Remember, they weren't written in chapters. These numbers were just thrown in later so he could have a point of reference. So he's just still writing the letter. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. What he's saying is, and you would think these pinheads who go around like to point out 
screaming about gays and whatever, would get the point. This whole thing, he's putting all these sins in the same pot. And I know it's hard for a lot of people to think because, you know, there's, you know, there's other sinners. I'm not as bad as some of those other sinners. Really? We're all a mess, which is the point he's trying to make here. We all deserve to go to hell, right? You think, well, I shouldn't go to hell. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not. You should see my neighbor. He's going to hell for sure. I'm not as bad as he is, you know. But they don't get it. But we're all in the same pot. All of this poisons us. Even gossiping will put you in the same category. So he says, when you condemn others, he says, uh, uh, you pass judgment on them, but you're, you're guilty of the same things. Well, I didn't commit homosexuality. No, but you were guilty and, and, and you envied and you prayed for the pastor, prayed, you know, and, and all these different things. And, and you're, you're striving and fighting. All this stuff, it's all in the same pot. Don't be picking on any one of these things and hammering people over it uh, thinking that, you know, you're doing something righteous. Are you following me here? What's stunning to me is the number of Christians in America today who do exactly this. Mainly their thing is they got this big chip on their shoulder about homosexuality. You say, are you saying it's okay? No, but none of this is okay. All right? None of this is okay. You know, it's, it's, and I think sometimes, this is my own personal opinion. <laughs> I'm probably judging. <laughs> but, you know, why do people do this? I, I, I think sometimes they love to rail against homosexuality and gays getting married because then they don't have to focus on their own sin. You see? We're against gays. Never mind that half the men in their church all look at porn. Right? Christians like to come against lesbians and all this horrible because they don't want to point out the fact that their church is full of bitterness and strife and disrespect for their pastors. And all the politics that they play. I don't want to talk about those sins. Don't want to talk about the number of pastors who fall into sexual immorality every year, having affairs and all this other kind of stuff. It's inconvenient. We don't talk about that. We just attack a DC. I think sometimes they think by attacking this. They make themselves feel better. I don't know, other than that, I don't know why. What motive is there? Anybody here feel motivated to go after a homosexual? I've never felt that. What's all that about? Well, it's against the Bible. It's all against the Bible. <laughs> They're a bunch of pagans and heathens. You know, and even some, you know, I, I always get my trouble. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going there. I'm not going to say anything <laughs> too specific. But even when it comes to politics, you realize you're not voting for a pastor, right? You get that. And the Christians are like, well, this person's not fit because they're not holy. Well, if he's going to be your pastor, then I think you should bring that up. It's not, this isn't, we say, well, it's a Christian nation. It's not a Christian nation. Man, we quit being a Christian nation a long time ago. You realize the majority of people in America don't believe in Jesus. Or if they do, it's a casual thing. They believe in Jesus like, you know, they believe in the weather. Yeah, oh, yeah, the weather's out there somewhere. I, I know, I know. Stop getting so, you know, this isn't some theocracy where you get a crazy, we demand that everybody in the world act like we do. What we need to do is make sure we're acting the right way. That's what we're supposed to be doing. That the church should be living the right lives. We should be living the kind of lives that are so successful and blessed, people outside will look at us and say, wow, how do you get like that? Instead of running around and yelling and screaming at people, you know? And we, it seems like Christians are always falling for this. I, I just think, you know, Paul wrote once, he says, you know, look, at, look among you. There's not very many noble called. Not very mighty. In other words, they're saying, look, the most, most of us are a little dumb. You know, it's, I mean, it's kind of insulting, but maybe that's what it is. 
So many Christians, God reaches us for the simple, and the simple-minded people act in simple-minded ways and yell and scream about things that they got no business yelling and screaming about. You know, now, now over the last few months, there's been the, the whole transgender thing. And if I get you mad, just check your medication. <laughs> of all the stupid things to be having a fiddle. Well, I don't like it. How are you going to know? Why are we arguing about something so stupid? The only way we can enforce this is to have genital checkers at the bathroom. <laughs> it's the only way. We could set up a booth back there and have people sign up for, you know, ushering or children's ministry or genital checker or whatever like that. And I said, well, I'd know. No, you don't. We got transgender people to come to this church. Bet you a hundred bucks in a million years, you'd never know who it was. I wouldn't have known. I was shocked when they told me. I thought he was a guy. She said, oh, no, I'm not a guy. I'm a guy from here up. You know, I can't even get my head around it, okay? Well, who's going to check? Oh, I'm not checking. <laughs> All right, well, I, I don't want that to happen. Look, especially from the female, and the, the women are the ones that get the most upset about it. But talk about a group of people, you should have the less problem. You all have your own individual little deals, right? You step in what you do, unless you've got a camera going on, you don't know Jack. Unless you hear someone passing water, you look under, they're still standing. I guess that might give them away. But what are you doing this for anyway? <laughs> I've debated this with my wife. She still doesn't agree with me. So even in my, I just say, what's the, why are we people making a fit about this thing? People, Pastor, what are we going to do about transgenders? They ain't doing anything. <laughs> One of our campuses did say, now this is going to make some of you mad for sure. I just, uh, what's the point? They said, well, at the, uh, one of our campuses, there was one guy coming who was really bad at it. <laughs> you could tell he was a guy, but he was trying to sell himself as a woman. So they were using this as an example why we should make a stand on it. I said, no, we're not going to make a big deal. First of all, how often does this even happen? You talk about one-tenth of one percent. I mean, Christians make a big fit over something. No, it's nothing. Stop. Well, you can tell this guy's really not a woman. Well, you know what you ought to do? All the ladies should get together with him, take him shopping. Get him dolled up. Do a better sales pitch. I don't know. You can't do that. Why not? Well, it's a sin. Who says it's a sin? Well, according to the Old Testament, I know the Old Testament, we should stone him right after we finish stoning you. How about we just love the guy and hopefully at some point he comes to know Christ and then the Holy Spirit starts turning the light on and he realizes, man, what am I doing? Which I'm still praying for some of you <laughs> that have the proper genitals. Right? I'm praying the light, turn the light on to quit being so angry all the time. Turn the light on you're so bitter. Turn the light on, you know, quit fornicating. That's a big one in this church. Which I don't understand. I talk about it all the time. <laughs> and, and you know, because I talk to you, and what they always say to me, oh, I know we shouldn't, but what do I do? Throw them out of the church? You know, no. Now, we probably won't have them preach next Sunday. <laughs> Why can't I preach? I don't know, you're fornicating. That's one reason, you know. <laughs> but we love it. Look, we preach the truth. The Holy Spirit has to make it real in people's hearts. 
I know there's churches that don't ever want to preach any truth for fear of making people feel. We don't do it. We don't play that game. We tell the truth, but we don't condemn people with it. Here's the truth. Do we hate people? No. We love people. You find a really ugly transgender? Help them out. Be ministry for the ladies group. Get them some nice falsies. Well, at least for a minute, they'll quit freaking out all the children. They'll think it's a woman. Don't write me about this. I don't want to hear it. All right? I don't want to hear it. I know, I know some of you don't like that. I don't, I know, I know, I know. I don't care, but I know. Now, I'm not saying it's okay to jack with nature. I'm not saying any of that. I'm not saying any of this is okay. None of it's okay. Let's talk righteousness. Let's start lifting up God's standard. Here's how we should live life. But don't be quick to jump around and condemn people. You who pass judgment on someone else, for whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself. Because you pass judgment, do the same things. Well, I'm doing that thing. That's not his point. The point is you're in that pot. If you're part of the pot, you shouldn't be judging and condemning other people. Doesn't mean you shouldn't argue for what's right or to admit, you know, look, I struggle in this area and so whatever. I, I get that. We're not afraid to talk about what's right, but take it easy. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things. What same things? I didn't, yeah. I never worship a chicken. No, but you're still in the pot. You envier. You arguer. You gossiper. Ones who don't want to show mercy. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet you do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience? not realizing that God's kindness is intended to leave you to repentance. Did you catch this one? Or do you show contempt for, for the riches of God's kindness? See, it's just the way they write, and these translators use fancy words. What he's saying is, or do you get ticked off because God's nice to these people? Is that your problem? Are you upset because God doesn't? Why doesn't God just strike them all dead? Right? I've heard pastors say, you know, if God doesn't destroy uh, San Francisco, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. No, he won't, you pinhead. You know what you're talking about. There's a lot of homosexuality. That's why God killed Sodom and Gomorrah. That's not why God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. I challenge you. Read your Bible. Were they doing that? Indeed, they were. That is not why. Let me give you a real quick summary on why. Abraham says to God, he says, God said, I'm going to wipe this place off the face of the man. He said, man, would you do it if there were, what number does he start at? No, it was higher than that, I think. I think it was at least 100. I thought maybe it was higher. Maybe, I don't know. Who cares? But he starts at a number. I think it was 100. And uh, he says, would you destroy it if there was 100 righteous people? No, I wouldn't do that. And uh, he goes, uh, what about 50? You know what I want. And Abraham goes, okay. What about 25? Would you do it for 25? You know. And, uh, no, no, I don't get mad at me. And he keeps dropping it, right? I don't know what number he finally got down to. I don't know if he quit about 10 or something like five, uh, you know. Uh, he might have got all the way down to five. He said, I wouldn't, the reason he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, not because there were so many homosexuals in there, which is the common teaching, which is based on falseness. The reason he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, there wasn't one righteous person in there. Well, 
Let me correct. There was one in his family. Okay, what was his name? Lot. Okay. And what does God do before he destroys Sodom and Gomorrah? He gets them out of there. Why? Because he won't destroy it even if there's just one. That was the depravity of this city, that there was only one. Don't tell me that in cities like San Francisco or any other place that you disapprove of, you know, New Orleans or something else, that there's not at least one righteous person. That's why we don't see, you know, you got a city, a, a city of pure depravity where there's no righteous one. Even for Lot's sake, God would not destroy it. That's why he destroys it. So he goes in and he gets Lot out of there and warns him, you know, don't look back. Don't look back. Somebody had to look back. <laughs> Turns into a pillar of salt, Lot's wife. Whoa. Intense stuff. Because she's seen something that she not, should not be seeing. So anyway, you know, are you, are you ticked off because God is kind? Are you irritated because, for, because God's forbearance and his patience? I mean, literally, people think this way. They get mad because God doesn't destroy gay people. God doesn't destroy people they disagree with. Why doesn't God just rain down judgment and consume in flames every abortion clinic in the world? You know, there's some people who are there, just they don't really even clear of what they're doing. There's some really evil people that push all this. Why anybody votes for anybody who promotes any of that stuff is beyond me. I know you got all your reasons for your voice, man. That alone, every Christian should get on the same page. With that. That's my personal opinion. Again, don't write me. All right? Well, why God? I'm just people. I've heard Christians. Why doesn't God destroy these places? Why doesn't God kill these people? You know, every time I drive by that 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 Muslim mosque, I, I pray judgment on them. Why doesn't God just destroy it? Stop. You know, once Jesus' disciples said that to Jesus. Look at those guys over there. They're not doing what we're doing. Should we call down fire from heaven and destroy them? Jesus, stop. You don't even know what your spirit you're from. What are you talking about? Because people actually get upset because God is patient with bad people. Don't you get upset because God's kind to evil people? Don't you get upset because God forbears and bears up under wickedness? Don't get you get upset because God doesn't destroy a country that you think he should destroy because you disagree with the way that country acts? Not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead people to repentance. Aren't you glad God didn't kill you when you deserved it the most? Maybe you think you never deserved it. I deserved it. I had it coming. You know, there's two types of people in the world today. People who you need to convince that they're sinners and others that pretty much get it. You know, I was in the second category. I never had anyone to explain to me sin. <laughs> yep, that's me. <laughs> okay. And there's people, I mean, literally, they have a hard time because they're pretty nice people. They don't really do anything. They, you know, they'll break for cats. As opposed to, ding, got another one. You know, they help little ladies across the street. They always pay their taxes. They do everything, you know. And then they come to a service like this. And, and there's a lot of good people. They really are. They're such good people. I have a hard time convincing them that they need Jesus. You ever talk to anybody like that? It's quite a challenge. My dad was like that. 
My dad, by the way, Gunger, Dr. Gunger, he was a Muslim. Nicest man you would ever meet, ever. I never saw him. I never heard him curse one time my entire life. Uh, never saw him uh, do anything. I never saw him drunk. I'm nothing. You know, there's a few times he beat the snot out of me, but even then, I had that one coming. <laughs> and it was hard for him to understand his need for Jesus. But at some point, everybody's life starts hitting real need and things aren't working and they weren't working for him. We finally led him to Jesus and, you know, he converted to Christianity. Praise God for that. But, uh, you know, don't, don't be quick to hope God strikes people dead. You know, oh, I don't like these Muslims in our town. I wish God just to strike them all dead. No, 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 don't talk like that. You don't know who's in there. At some point, it's going to be the next Hazm that was here sharing his testimony. Don't get angry over God's patience with people, is what he's saying, all right? All right, because of your stubborn, and I wonder who he's talking to here, because, because he starts out writing to grace and peace to all those who are loved by God. A little bit later, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up for wrath against yourself for, God's, for the day of God's judgment when his righteous judgment will be revealed. I'm like, who are you talking to? Why are you yelling? God will repay each person according to what they've done to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, immortality, doing right. He will give eternal life. But those who are seeking, self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. I was talking about the uh, final judgment. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. For the, first for the Jew, because they should know better, uh, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. First for the Jew, and then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All right? Now, he starts doing a lot of talking. Now, he's really been talking a lot from a Jewish perspective, because they understood the rights and wrongs of all this. In paganism, they didn't understand it. It took them a while to get it. Uh, and, uh, you know, Paul was trying to teach them. When he wrote to the Corinthians, they were going to prostitutes and stuff. You'd think he'd yell and scream at them. He didn't yell. I'd be yelling and screaming at you if you do that. But uh, he said, you know, guys, don't you understand that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit? You know, don't you know who you are? I mean, so he was very gentle towards them, but still warning them, you can't do these things. I mean, this is going to put you in a very bad place. But, uh, you know, from a pagan culture, they did all kinds of things, and no one thought anything of it. This was normal life for them. The Jews knew better. Uh, so he uses that reference a lot. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law. He's talking not, not, not the speeding tickets or, you know, not that kind of law. He's talking about the Old Testament law, the law of Moses. Uh, those who obey the law will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciousness, which I mentioned before, also bear witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times defending them. In other words, again, he's just trying to talk about, explain, and I've had people ask me, what about people who never hear about Jesus? You know, there's ways that God makes himself still real to people. Better they hear the gospel, because in the gospel is great freedom. Okay? But it's, it's not that they are without, uh, you know, 
God, I promise you, on judgment day, no one's going to say God's not being fair. Everybody will be judged according to the standard that they've known. He says those who die without the law, they don't know anything about it, will be judged by that standard. They'll still be judged. I mean, you still want people to find Jesus, right? Those who knew better and did it anyway, they'll be judged by a harsher standard. Uh, Jesus said, you know, to whom much is given, much is required. All right? All right, so this will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Now, you, if you call yourself a Jew, now again, he's talking directly to Jews. I've got to think he's talking to the minority. I don't know how many Jews are in the church of Rome. You know, it's got to be a minority, but yet they tend to hold a pretty strong position in the church, as we've mentioned in some of us other writings, because I think they were like kind of natural leaders, because again, they understood what they were all talking about because they were under, they understood the Old Testament where the Messiah and everything. So they, they kind of were natural born leaders, but it would be easy for them to start becoming, you know, looking down their ecclesiastical noses at people and, you know, judging people harshly. And he was warning them not to do that. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are, in, I'm sorry, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, you are a light for those who are in the dark, you are an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of the little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge. You then who teach others, do you not also teach yourself? All right, so he's really writing to this class of Christians that again, kind of lifted themselves up a bit. I th again, I think it was real natural for them to rise to the top in any Christian church at this time because they understood spiritual things much more than anybody else. They're, they had a real leg up in terms of knowledge. But he says, if you consider yourself all of this, I'm uh, opening the eyes of the blind. I'm the one who has insults. I'm the one who can teach children. Da, da, da. And then he says, you who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, are you committing adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? The law was very complicated, and they were all guilty of it at some level. As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. Now, again, so in their case, not only are they Jewish and they have all this understanding, they have been circumcised, okay, which from a Jewish perspective is a big stinking deal, all right, and uh, <laughs> they actually did have genital checkers, <laughs> they did, they would literally make sure you were snipped properly if you were new to the group, you know. It'd be a little embarrassing. <laughs> you know, right? And this would be, if you were not, if you were uncircumcised, ooh, they wouldn't have anything to do with you. Or would it says that you become, well, by now, the church has pretty made it clear you don't have to become circumcised. But they are circumcised. And therefore, they think they're part of this uppity group, if you will. All right? Uh, and people can do that for a variety of reasons. It doesn't just have to be Jewish. It can be based on color, it could be based on economic structures, you shouldn't be looking down your nose at anybody else, bottom line, all right, uh, just because just you know a lot, like these guys knew, it doesn't make them right, or didn't necessarily make them very holy, 
The same isn't true in churches. In fact, Pastor Joe, who's pastored as well, you know, anybody's ever been in this, knows that the people that you dread the most that come to your church are people initially you dread because you don't know them, are the ones who've been going to churches since they were 12. <laughs> because they are so arrogant. And they know everything. And they've been, you know, every Beth Moore Bible study that's ever been written. And I know this and I know that. And, I know and these are the people, you know, I always see them coming. Ah, you knew, man, yeah, I used to be, I used to be an elder at this church over there. And I just, praise the Lord. You know, and I'm wondering, it's just, it's a, it's a horseshoe. It's, some of them are wonderful servants because they really get it. Others become major pains in my behind. Because knowledge, they, they, they kind of get cocky about it is really the reality of it. And that's what he's dealing with here. So he says, so what? You're circumcised. If you wind up breaking the law, it's like you never got circumcised at all, which is very radical to me. What he's saying here is making them angry at some point because you couldn't tell a Jew just because he messes up, he's like he never was circumcised because the most important thing in the world to them was being circumcised. But he's challenging him on this. Uh, so then if you are not circumcised, I'm sorry, so then if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirement, they do the right things, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? Well, to most circumcised people, they say no, but Paul's implying that they are. If you're circumcised and do the wrong thing, it's like you weren't circumcised. And if you've never been circumcised, but you did the right thing, it's like you were circumcised. But to these people who are really technical about actually having the deed done, that would really mess with their heads. The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. Now he's really messing with him. He says, no, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a, pray, a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Now, this, this is, again, I, I don't even know how, we, we don't even have anything we can compare that to today's. What would you have to compare like? I mean, there's people who literally, what would be an, an outrageous example? Let's say we lived in the South in 1930. And, uh, and of course, they hated blacks, and blacks weren't even allowed in their churches and stuff. Uh, it would be like saying to all these white people, say, you know, you think you're white people because you're white? You're, not, you're only white if you're white on the inside. I'd rather have a black person who's right on the inside. He's more white than you. In 1930, they'd string me up for that. You see what I'm saying? That's what they would do. So um, this is very volatile, what Paul's saying here. This is, of course, they didn't mess with Paul because they had all this power. But, uh, you know, this would really ruffle their feathers big time. You think you're a Jew because you've had all this stuff? And then, no, 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 I'll tell you who the real Jew is, someone who's serving God from the heart. That's a real Jew. Well, I messes with someone who's, wait a minute, I'm a Jew, I've been circumcised, and I knew all this stuff, and I, they want a higher standard. And he said, no, 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 no. So, he asks this question. What advantage then, this is chapter 3, verse 1, again, not a new chapter, it's just continuing the letter. What advantage then is there in becoming a Jew, or being a Jew? What value is there in circumcision? He says, much in every way. Which is really confusing. Because if you jump down to verse 9, he says, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. <laughs> so this is kind of what I'm talking about. Now, I don't know if it's a debating style they use back in the I don't. Someone knows. I don't care. 
But I just know it's a little confusing. We've seen this with Paul before. He'll jump on one issue, and then all of a sudden he jumps back on the other issue. And I don't know, I don't know if it's kind of like a, a, a sheepdog that's barking at the sheep. And he's on the left hand, and he's barking the sheep, and then all of a sudden, you know, he's on the other side, and he's barking at the sheep. The sheep's thinking, this dog's schizophrenic, okay? But... The point is, he's trying to get the sheep going in the right direction. Does that make any sense? That's the best analogy I would get. Because every once in a while, he'll say this, and you go, okay, but I really, this is also true. And it's completely opposite. And to us, 2,000 years now, from a different language, a different culture, different way of making arguments and debates, it's a little confusing, to say the least. All right? So I just think he's trying to get people in the middle. So anyway, so... He's saying, if this is true, that you can be Jew just in your heart, then what's the point of being a Jew? He says, oh, there's much, much advantage. Although he says in a second, there's none. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithful nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? that God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? He says, I'm using a human argument. So what he's saying, here's the, here's the argument. If God's holiness is really amplified because we're so wicked, well, let's be really wicked so God will be really holy. Right? And uh, <laughs> he says, no, no, it doesn't work that way. Um, if our righteousness brings out God's righteousness, unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness, what shall we say? That God is unjust and how, how can God judge us? Because our unrighteousness is showing how holy he is. No, it doesn't work that way. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, well, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, then why am I condemned as a sinner? Right? If I'm a liar, but yet it shows how truthful God is, why does God get mad at me for being a liar? This is just how nice God is. That doesn't work that way. And why not, as some slanderously claim, let us do evil that good may result. That's what I was just getting at, you know. Let's, let's sin so God will be glorified more. No! That's not how, how this works. Their condemnation, condemnation is just. Which is a really polite way of saying they deserve going to hell. Right? Saying, you know, these, these translators are very, very proper. Very proper. They can't say that. What does it mean to be condemned? Condemned to hell. Their condemnation is just. Sounds very proper. When in fact what he's saying, they deserve to go to hell. Anybody who's living and intentionally sinning, thinking that my sin is going to bring glory to God. So if I go out and I cheat on my wife, it just shows how wonderful and faithful God is. These people deserve to go to hell is what he's saying. A little intense there. So what shall we conclude then? I already read this. Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles are alike. <laughs> are all under the power of sin. I'm sorry. It just doesn't make any sense to me. I don't understand. He says, what? Is there any advantage in every way? And then, no, nah, not at all, because we're all the same. I don't know. Ask him when you see him. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All this is really key Christian foundational 
understanding about salvation. What he's quoting here uh, from uh, Psalms, but after making this whole argument that we're all in the same pot, this is really fundamental because the whole purpose of salvation is because we've all sinned. If everybody's a mess, if we all need God, that's why Jesus Christ died on the cross. That's what makes this clear, okay? So his conclusion now becomes very clear, even though he's hopping around here and I don't know exactly what he's talking about. There is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks after God. Everyone's turned away. They uh, have altogether become worthless. There's no one that does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we all uh, become conscious of our sin. The whole point of the law, he says, is to bring out, and he made this brilliantly when we led, read the letter to the Galatians, that the law was basically the school teacher until we came to Christ. Then, you know, these laws were to help to keep them in line. But they never did it right. Nobody can do this all right. Everybody breaks the law at some point. We all need God. No matter how good you think you are, you are not good enough. There is no one good enough to think that they deserve to get into heaven just because they're so good. That's not the way this works. I heard one pastor said, you know, one analogy is take the worst filthiest sinner, the worst person you can imagine, the Adolf Hitler of the ages, and dig the deepest pit you could possibly dig in the face of the earth before it's too hot anymore, and you put him at the bottom of that pit. And then you take the most righteous, loving, sacrificing, caring person we know and put him on top of Mount Everest. That's quite a difference. But he says, then tell them both to reach up and touch the stars. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter whether you're in the deepest pit or you're on top of Mount Everest. Nobody can touch the stars. That's really where we're at. God's righteousness is so far above anything a human being could ever pull off. It would be like trying to touch the stars, even if you're on the highest mountain on the face of the earth. We've all fallen short. Everybody has sinned. Don't be condemning people because you're basically just condemning yourself. When you pick one group and you go after one sin and you don't like a particular thing, you're just judging yourself. Don't do that, he says. And don't get mad that God is patient with people. All right? Don't get mad at God. God's patience is there to help bring people to repentance is why that's there. Anyway, all of this, going through all this, just to lay the fundamental premise, why did Jesus go to the cross? Because without that, we were hopelessly lost. If you don't have the sense that, man, without Jesus, I never had a chance. This is really where it starts. Understanding your need. We all need God. We've all sinned. Even our most righteous acts, the Bible says, are like filthy rags, is what the Bible says. And I won't even give you the literal translation of what that means. It's very gross. We'll just leave it at that. Our righteous are the filthiest things you can imagine. All right? We need God. Thank God for his patience for all of us. Thank God he didn't kill us when we deserved to be killed. Thank God didn't throw us when we were our meanest, nastiest, selfish, sinful, most hurting thing. He was patient with us, therefore let us be patient with others. Even those who might persecute us and bring us harm and injure us. 
where Stephen, the first martyr, would cry out and say, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. You know, don't hold it against them. How do you get there? You get there when you understand the mess we're all in. Because some of those people who undoubtedly stoned Stephen eventually came to Christ. In fact, the guy who was the most approving of Stephen's death, do you remember his name? Paul. His name was Saul. Eventually became Paul. And we just read the first part of his letter here. You think, why doesn't God kill Paul, Saul at the time, for killing Stephen? Well, relax. God's patience. What happens? This very man who did this horrible act, through God's patience, comes to repentance, finds Christ, and he becomes the strongest Christian leader in the history of, of Christianity, responsible for writing the bulk of the New Testament. A really bad guy. And, uh, and he even struggles with it. We'll, we'll run in other parts of, the, of, of his letters where he writes, man, he says, I was, I'm the worst of the worst. And he wasn't being humble. <laughs> he really felt he was the worst of the worst. He becomes a Christian. He loves his people passionately. And then he has to remember that he tried to kill them and approved of their killing and tormented them and did everything he could to destroy them. He says, I don't even know how I'm even a Christian today. It's the grace of God. So in the midst of all this, even the people who are the meanest, nastiest to you, love them, bless those that curse you, Jesus says. Be kind to those who are unkind to you. Don't be quick to wish judgment on anybody. Don't think that your sins are so much better than someone else's kinds of sins. We're all in the same pot, and we all need God's grace. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for the teaching of the scriptures tonight. Help us to understand uh, our great need. And anyone who's listening to me tonight, be it in this meeting and one of our campuses online, someone who just out of curiosity is listening to this, maybe they've never truly experienced this understanding that they need God, that they need forgiveness. They might feel they're better than other people, but compared to you, we're all in the same pot. There's no one more righteous. There's, there's nothing there. We all need to be forgiven. Thank you that you made it possible that we could be forgiven through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on that cross. We're very grateful. In Jesus' name, we thank you. And everybody said, amen. amen. All right, next Wednesday night, we'll pick it up and take it from there. See ya.